This dynamic message is brought to you by Redemption in Jesus with Marco Rava. Let's continue with our Bible study series tonight, and here's the title. It is the Epistle to the Hebrews, and tonight specifically, we are going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1, 2, and 3, and we are subtitling this portion, Move On from Relating to God by Law. And you'll see that as he speaks and as we read what the writer wrote, uh, you'll see that in essence, that's what he's talking about. Even though traditionally, it is often misunderstood, it is often mistaught because it's taken out of context, you know, the greater context and the immediate context, and like I always say, and I hear many a preacher say of these days, which is true, you know, when you take the text out of context, all you're left with is con. And you don't want a con. You want the context. You want truth. Amen. And so that's why we make sure that we keep everything in context. And so we want to let the Bible interpret the Bible, and we want to look at everything through the finished work of the cross, because that is the proper way. Those are good principles to help us understand Scripture correctly. And so we're going to look at these three verses. Now, even though it's just three verses, you know, I could add in a lot more and we could try and rush through this. But as you know, it's a marathon. We're taking our time with this. And so I want to make sure that we get the most out of each portion. I don't want to feel like I have to rush through it, you know, because of you know, people that are impatient or they just can't sit so long. Well, what can we do about that? Amen. You that matter, you that are interested are here with us tonight. And so I know that you are happy to receive and we, we understanding. You know, the book of Hebrews is, uh, I've heard many a preacher too say this, that it's one of the most neglected books as far as general teaching of Scripture goes. And you can see why, because there is so much there, it is so loaded, but also it speaks so much about law and grace, and that I think at times, you know, people who want to hang on to the law, who want to mix law and grace in their teaching and not teach accurately, you know, they shy away from it because of those issues. But praise God that in actual fact it helps us understand gospel truth. Amen. And so, just as a reminder to get us back in context with what we're about to read remember that as the writer finished off last week now we call it chapter and verse and the end of chapter five but remember this was an epistle it's a letter it wasn't written in chapter and number chapter and numberings we all were only added in the late 1500s to help us help us find scripture quickly and unfortunately one of the downsides to putting chapters and numbers this is that people take things out of context and make doctrines out of single verses or, you know, a couple of verses together. And we can't do that because, unfortunately, chapter numbers help, helps us in a weird way, in a, in a wrong way. It helps us lose the context of the text. And so, uh, remember that at the end of chapter 5, which is all still continuous, he spoke about the value of understanding God's law in order to understand and appreciate properly, or like we should, gospel truth. Remember, he said, you know, you don't even understand your own law. You don't even understand the basics of your law. And you should understand that, because if you understood that, you would understand 
gospel truth. Remember, that's in essence, I'm putting it in my own words, but that's in essence what he conveyed in our last portion. And so what he did there is he contrasted Judaism to Christianity, if you will. And you know, these days you've got to be so careful that you use the term Christianity because there are so many weird versions of Christianity. Most people think that a mixture of law and grace is Christianity, and it's not. And so that's why you won't often find me using that term. You know, we are believers in Jesus. We are new creations in Jesus. Um, but unfortunately, you know, Christianity has a bit of a bad stigma out there amongst the lost, and even amongst the church and people in church, because to them, Christianity, like for example, and, you know, I'm going to be treading on something here, but you need to hear my heart and pray for me if you disagree and do whatever you like with my opinion. But, you know, one of the things we often hear people talk about and understand the context, understand what, how they're saying it and what they mean when they say that. But, you know, they say that our nation was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. Now, what they're saying is, is that we were established on a mixture of law and grace. That's, in essence, what they're saying when they say that. I understand, but the truth of the matter is, is that if we want to be scripturally correct, this nation was based on the gospel, was, was established on the gospel of Jesus, salvation in Jesus. Amen. And yes, the Lord does show us Christ, but it's not a, an embracement of both, because that's a mixture of law and grace. You know, that's where we've gone wrong in the church for so long. And so, but anyway, so this is what the writer does and did last time we, we studied this. He contrasted Judaism to Christianity, or you, or you could say law to grace, or you could say old covenant way of relating to God to new covenant way of relating to God. And so, unfortunately, that portion we studied last time, it is often misunderstood and taken out of context. And it is taught that it's talking about immature and mature believers. In other words, what, how traditionally it's been taught is, is that this is now comparing two kinds of Christians, two kinds of believers, immature and mature. And that's not the case because when you do that, you take away the real meaning behind what he is conveying and what Scripture is actually saying to us. And so... Again, he says, if you understand the law correctly and the basic principles of the law, then you'll be able to determine good and wholesome doctrine. Remember, we, that's where he finished off. And so now he continues, and we go on with chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. So let's read the whole portion first. And then, as we always do, we're going to look at it bit by bit. So let's read the whole portion first. Here it comes. He says, therefore, in other words, being able to tell, you know, good from evil, as he said in the King James, but really it's talking about being able to determine good and wholesome doctrine and not good and wholesome doctrine, right? He says, therefore, watch this now, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. That's an interesting phrase. Let us go on unto perfection. You see, traditionally this is taught, leaving the basic principles of Christianity, if you will, and let's go on to the more mature principles of Christianity. That's how this is traditionally taught, but that's not what he's talking about, and that's not what he's saying, and I'm running ahead of myself. Let's read the whole portion first. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, and of the laying on of hands, 
and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permit. Now, if you look at that, let's leave it on for a moment. If you look at that, there seems to be much confusion there, just reading it off like that, without understanding what we already understand. And you can see why some would interpret this to be saying, you see, he's talking about baby Christians and mature Christians. And he's saying, you know, you just keep on the milk, on the basic stuff of Christianity. You never grow in the things of God, the deeper things of God, you know, the meat of the word of God. And so lay those things down. And then he, the people say, you know, he's talking about those basic things of Christianity, such as repentance from the works, faith towards God, you know, baptism and this and that. That's how it's generally interpreted. But you'll see that that's not, remember the context is about law. And this is not what he's saying over here. So we're going to now take a look at it. And I'm going to show you what he's actually talking about. And so let's begin with the first part of verse 1 of this chapter 6. Now watch what he said in the first part of that. He says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Now, if you were just to take that at face value, you would have to agree with me that it sounds a little strange because it all, it's almost like he's telling us to leave the basic things of God and move on from that. Why would he do that? I mean, that's always part of our faith. So let me show you, and you'll see that I have the word leaving there in yellow because I want to show you what that word means. And this is going to actually help us understand the greater context here. So, all right, so let me show you that word leaving from the HELPS Word Studies Lexicon. Let me show you what that word actually means. Here it is. There's the uh, Greek number. And it's the word aphiemi. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Aphiemi. All right. And it's a compound of two words. Apo and hiemi. And apo means away from. And hiemi means send. So properly translated, it should say send away. Or it can also be translated as release. Or it can be translated as discharge. Now let's leave that on. And let me, I'm going to replace the phrase in, in the first part of verse 1 with these meanings. You tell me what you think he's saying. Therefore, send away the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Or, therefore, release the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Or, Therefore, discharge the principles of the doctrine of Christ. I mean, it doesn't matter which way you read that. It sounds like he's telling us to detach ourselves, disconnect ourselves from the basic principles of Christ. So imagine if he was talking about what, how traditionally it's taught as, you know, this is the baby principles, the milk of, of the gospel. All right, so let's just say it's baptism and faith. And he's telling us here, to send it away, to release ourselves from it, to discharge from it, to disconnect from it. Okay, so how are you going to build onto that? How are you going to build advanced principles of faith if he, you meant to release the basic principles of it? I mean, he's not saying move on from this. He's saying detach yourself, let it go. So you can see that he's talking about something else. Now, what is interesting this is that, and I'm going to show you one verse, but there's a number. There's quite a few in actual fact. And you'll see the meaning is clear. I want to show you another verse with that same word 
afiemi is used. And I've already shown you what it means. And I want to show you that same word afiemi, how it's used in this portion to give us an idea of what he's actually saying. So look at this in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 11, the second part of that verse, talking about marriage and divorce. Watch what he says here. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now that word divorce, which is in the yellow there, is the very exact same word afiemi. When you think about divorce, you know what that means. It means a total detachment, a total separation. And so, if you were to put that the way that has been translated there, which is correct, in also, in that portion that we read in Hebrews, you know, the first part of verse 1, then it would have to say something like this. Therefore, divorce the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Do we really have to divorce certain things about the gospel? Well, no, not really. So it's clear that he's not talking about that. So when he says leaving, what he's talking about is depart from. These are other words that is translated, and it can be translated, by the way. He's telling us depart from, or separate from, or be discharged from. It's talking about detachment, disconnection. And so then he qualifies what we actually need, need to disconnect from. Because remember, it said... Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. So we need to divorce ourselves from the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Interesting, isn't it? And so, like I said, contrary to traditional teaching, this does not mean he is not talking about the gospel or even the basic principles of the gospel. He's not talking about that. In context, he's talking about the law because he's just finished talking about the law, right? And so the types and shadows of Jesus. And so to clarify what he's talking about, to clarify what principles that we need to divorce ourselves, detach ourselves, separate ourselves from, he basically goes on to give us, in that same portion, he goes on to give us six foundational aspects of what he's talking about. And you'll see that these six foundational aspects are actually aspects of the law, not of the gospel, not of the Christian faith, if you will. It's not of the gospel. So, what I'm going to do now is to help us understand this. I'm going to skip the middle part of verse 1, and we're going to look at the last part of verse 1 now, and then we'll come back to that middle part, okay? Because I want to stay on this now, because he says, let's divorce ourselves from the principles of Christ. Notice he didn't say Jesus Christ. He didn't say the Lord. The reason why he used Christ is because he's speaking to a Jewish audience. And in actual fact, Christ would have been better translated as Messiah. Because that's what he was known to Jews, to those who related to God by the Old Covenant. They were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And so you can see that already would connect it to the Old Covenant. So let's read the last part of verse 1, and then we'll come back to the middle part, okay? Because now you're going to see he's going to give us the six foundational aspects to help us understand what he means when he says the principles of the doctrine of Messiah. That's how it should have been translated, because he's speaking in terms of Old Covenant. So here we go, the last part of verse 6. He's going to give us... Six, remember? Here's the first two. He says, this is what these principles are. 
Not laying again the foundation, watch this, of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. So those are the first two things, the first two clues that he gives us that he says are foundational principles of the doctrine of Christ. The principles of Christ, right? So let's talk about that for a moment. There's two, repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Let's have a look at repentance from dead works. What is he talking about? He's talking about works of the law. The reason why they are dead works is because they could never get us to full righteousness, to full right standing before God. You would, you know, have to earn and deserve. You would do the best you can, but you could never reach perfection. You could never reach what you can reach in Jesus, which is imputed righteousness. And so because of that, he says, you know, these works are dead works because they are never going to give you what Jesus the person can give you. And in actual fact, in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16, it clarifies that. Watch what it says in that portion. It says, knowing that a man is not justified, watch this, by the works of the law. Okay, so if he's not justified by the works of the law, then they are dead works. And that's exactly what he's referring to. But by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ. Watch this. And not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And if you look at it in context, and we could get into a bigger study here, but what this is showing us here is that the works of the law are also referred to in the New Covenant as dead works because they can never achieve true justification with God because they based on animal sacrifices, types and shadows of Jesus. And so when he says repentance from dead works, in other words, what he's saying is changing your mind from works of the law because they are dead works. They can't do anything. So they are known as dead works. And then he says, and of faith, Toward God. Now you would think, hold on a minute. Faith toward God is always good. That sounds like, you know, New Covenant. Well, no, he's talking about Old Testament faith. Now, listen to this carefully, and then I'm going to show you. He is talking about Old Testament faith, which did not permit those of the Old Testament to reach the perfection that you and I, as New Covenant, New Covenant believers, have in Jesus. Let me, I hope you understood that. In other words, before the cross, not just in the old covenant time, but also the whole Old Testament. Because remember, the whole Old Testament is not all Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is in the Old Testament, but it's not all Old Covenant, right? And so throughout the Old Covenant and throughout the whole Old Testament, there were people who believed. Abraham believed. Jacob believed, David believed, the prophets believed, so many other people, men and women believed, right? And in actual fact, in Hebrews 11, we're going to learn about them a little bit more. And, you know, that's what we call the, the whole of whole fame of faith or the heroes of faith. But in the Old Testament, before the cross, there were many who believed. But one thing that in the, we see in the Old Testament, no matter how much they believed, and how hard they believed, if you will, they were not permitted 
to believe the way you and I get to believe and enter into the fullness, the perfection of Jesus. Because if they could, then it, Jesus would not have been necessary. If faith, if believing could achieve it in the Old Testament, then they would have entered into the same promise that we have, the same reality we have in Jesus. And therefore, you know, we could have just gone on from what they were doing and really Jesus would not have been necessary. But you see, here's the difference. Old Testament faith, no matter how hard they believed, they could never reach the perfection or the, full, the fullness, the completeness of the promise that you and I get to enter into when we believe, when we put faith in God. Okay, And so let me show you this, because what, what he means when he says that, he says, you know, he's talking about the basic principles of the law, basically. That's what he's talking about, practices of the law. And he says the first one is dead works. Well, the law has dead works, because in the New Covenant, we don't have that. And then also, he's talking about faith toward God. He's talking about Old Covenant, Old Testament faith. Let me show you this. Hebrews 11, verse 39 to 40, talking about Old Testament heroes of faith. Watch what it says real carefully, because it's going to verify what I just told you now. It says, and all of these, talking about all these people in the Old Covenant who believed, though they gained divine approval through their faith. See that? Watch what it says next. Did not receive the fulfillment of what was promised. It's not talking about the promises made to them specifically, one-on-one. -on -one. It's talking about the overall promise of Jesus and righteousness in Jesus and redemption in Jesus. So it says, even though they believed and you know they got God's approval because of their faith, it says they didn't enter and receive the fulfillment of the promise that you and I have. And then it actually qualifies us in the next portion. Because God had us, talking about New Covenant believers, in mind and had something better for us. See that? So, they, so that they, these men and women of authentic faith, watch us, would not be made perfect, that is, completed in Him apart from us. So what that's telling you is, is that Old Testament faith was limited. And it was limited in the fact that it couldn't get to the point where they would enter into redemption in Jesus and the fulfillment of the promise, which you and I get to enter into. What a privilege, what an honor, what a blessing that is, amen? The fact that <laughs> in the Old Testament, they could believe as hard as we believe, maybe even harder. But no matter how strong they believed, God just didn't permit them to enter into the fullness that you and I get to enter in Jesus. Why? Because it wasn't time yet. Jesus had not come. The cross hadn't happened. And so when the writer of Hebrews is now giving his uh, definitions of what the principles of Christ are, he's talking about old covenant principles. Dead works is old covenant principle. Faith toward God. This is what he means by that. He's talking about old covenant faith, which was limited. And so it says we need to move on from those. So you can see why he used such a strong word as epiphemia, or I think I've got it right, 
which can also be translated as divorce. In other words, what he's saying to them is move on from the law because the law is the basic principles. Yes, it's the type and shadow of Messiah. Yes, it points to Messiah, but you can't hang on to that because that's not going to help you enter into the fullness of the promise in Jesus. That's what he's saying. So it's not about, you know, a baby Christianity and mature Christianity and milk and, you know, meat of the, of, of the gospel. No, it's a comparison between old covenant way of relating to God, law, and new covenant way of relating to God, grace, Jesus. Amen. And so that's what he means when he says faith toward God. So it's talking about old covenant, Old Testament faith. Then let's go on reading and let's see the next two. So uh, in the beginning of verse two, it says of the doctrines of baptisms. Notice it's plural. And of laying on of hands. Now someone would think, and again, this is mistaught in, um, in Christendom today. It's to be said that, you know, baptism is a basic aspect of faith. Laying on of hands is a basic aspect of faith. If you just hung up with those, you're still a baby Christian. You need to move on from that. Well, Paul said you need to divorce from these. You need to detach yourself from these. So clearly he's talking about things of the law, not things of the new covenant, not things of grace. And so let's have a look at these. What does he mean when he says the doctrine of baptisms? Now, you know, because it's plural, again, how this is traditionally taught is to say, well, it's talking about the baptism of water and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Two baptisms, basic stuff of, of the gospel, really. <laughs> That's why some don't even, still don't even speak in tongues. And so, but th is that what he's talking about? No. Remember, his whole thing has referring to old covenant under the law practices and he's saying, move on from that because that's the baby stuff. That is the types and shadows. Those are the pictures. You, you don't have to be shown an elephant. You can read the word elephant now. I'm putting it in my own words. That's what he's referring to. So let's see this doctrine of baptisms. What he's really talking about here when he says that is old covenant washing ceremonies. And, you know, I think we've touched on it at some point and we'll teach on it sometime too. This is that under the law in the old covenant, the, the old covenant, yeah, they had so many different washings. I mean, you remember when the disciples, you know, went to eat, they didn't wash their hands. And the Pharisees and Sadducees had a, something to say about that to Jesus, you know. They don't even wash their hands because there was a ritual to wash your feet, wash your hands, wash your clothes. There was a big thing. And under the law, there is a big thing about washing. I mean, even when the God gave the law, the people needed to go and be ceremonially clean before they could approach the mountain. And so when you think about all of these things, what he means when he says the doctrine of baptisms, he's talking about old covenant washing ceremonies. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you that word baptisms that he spoke of there. And I'm going to show it to you from the Helps Word Studies lexicon. And watch how that word should actually be translated. Here it comes now. So it's the word baptisms. There's the number. And it's the word baptismos. Now that already on its own gives us a clue that it's not the same thing. Because if you look at the new covenant and you look at new covenant baptism, it always uses the word baptizo with a Z. Not the word baptismos. So this is a different thing that it's talking about. And look how it should be translated and what it means. It means submergings 
always in the plural in the New Testament. See, so it doesn't refer to just one. Then, watch, here it comes now. Figuratively, ceremonial washings, and then it says, or the profound re realities of spiritual and water baptism. So yes, you can use it to refer to water baptism and baptism of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant, but that's a secondary meaning. What it really means is ceremonial washings. Well, the only place where you find ceremonial washings is in the Old Covenant. The New Covenant doesn't have ceremonial washings. And so you can see again that he is talking about those uh, washings, ceremonial washings. He's not talking about actual baptism in water and actual baptism in the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about that. In actual fact, watch this in Hebrews 9 verse 10 from the Passion Translation. The very same word is used here, but it's actually translated more correctly here. Watch this. For this old pattern, so it's talking about the old covenant, of worship was a matter of external rules and rituals, watch this, concerning food and drink and ceremonial washings. That's the same word baptismos there. But in the, in the Passion, they've translated it correctly from the original. Ceremonial washings which was imposed upon us until the appointed time of hard restoration had arrived. So you can see that this is clearly making reference to Old Covenant uh, washings, Old Covenant ceremonial washings. And there once more we see the evidence that he's not talking about the basics of the gospel, of Christianity, if you will. He's talking about the things of the law, which in truth they the tops and shadows, and tops and shadows are not the real, so therefore they are the basic things that point to Messiah. Amen. And then the next thing he says here is, is that of the laying on of hands. That's the fourth aspect that he brings <coughs> into mind to help us understand what he means when he says the principles of Christ. And so what is this laying on of hands? Well, he's making a reference to old covenant offerings. Under the Old Covenant, one of the practices that took place, sometimes it's referred to as the scapegoat. In actual fact, that's where we get the term from, you know, scapegoat, because it was actually done in the Old Covenant. But what used to happen is, is that <clears throat> whether it was the priest himself, and he did it too, or for the people, or even offerer, someone who brought an animal sacrifice to God, you know, on the Day of Atonement or when they had sinned and they knew that they had sinned and they had messed up, the way that they would get forgiveness for a time, if you will, as a type and shadow of Jesus, is that they would bring an animal without blemish. And so they would bring him before the priest, before the temple, and then what they would be instructed to do is the person who was sinful, who had sinned, and of course, we, in Adam, we're that all the time. But the person who is now acknowledging that he has sinned and wants to receive forgiveness, the type and shadow of Jesus, he would then lay his hands on the unblemished animal. And by doing that, the Bible tells us, God tells us, that the impurity, the sinfulness of the offerer would be transferred onto the animal. And the purity of the animal as a type and shadow of Jesus, would be transferred onto the offerer for a time, 
and thus that person would be forgiven. And then they would slaughter the animal and sacrifice it, which is again a type of Jesus for their sin. And so that's what he means when he says the laying on of hands. He's not talking about charismatic laying on of hands, you know, where lay hands and people fall under the anointing and, you know, all these different things that we have seen. <clears throat> now that's all good. And we do need to lay hands too. Because when Paul prayed, for example, when he prayed for some believers to be filled with the Holy Spirit, he laid his hands on them to receive the Holy Spirit. But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about old covenant laying on of hands. Let me show you one example. And there are many. But let me show you one example. In Leviticus chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we're going to read this one from the New, New Living. It says there, watch this. <clears throat> and if the animal you present as a burnt offering is from the herd, it must be a male with no defects. See, that's the type of Jesus. Bring it to the entrance of the tabernacle so you may be accepted by the Lord. Watch this now. Watch the next part real carefully. Lay your hand on the animal's head and the Lord will accept its death in your place to purify you, making you right with him. There it is right there, as clear as anything. They lay their hands on the animal. And as I said, this is one of those types. There are other types where they would lay their hands on the animal. And so this is what he is referring to here. When he says laying on of hands, he's not talking about the Christian laying on of hands. And he's saying, you know, that's also basic. Move on from that. Okay, what's... <laughs> Anyway, he's talking about laying on of hands of the Old Covenant. That's what he's referring to. Why? Because it's no longer necessary. You've got the real. You've got Jesus. You've got the actual substance. You need to move on from the shadow, which is basic, which is the basic principle of Messiah. Move on to the perfection, which is Jesus himself. That's what he's saying. And so there is the fourth one, the laying on of hands. Now let's go and look at the last two that he shares here, other of the six. And it's in Hebrews 2, the 6, verse 2, the second part of that verse. He says, And of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. So remember those two. Resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Well, I'm sure you've realized by now, and you know what I'm going to say. He is making reference to the resurrection of the dead. He's talking about old covenant resurrection the beliefs and the systems of the law and what they had about resurrection and he's talking about eternal judgment in terms of the old covenant and you know the resurrection of the dead for example <clears throat> it was uncertain they didn't have clarity on the resurrection of the dead they didn't have the scriptures that you and i have in the new covenant and so for them resurrection was a iffy thing it was a dodgy thing and sometimes it got so doctrinally uh, controversial that, in actual fact, the two sects, they, they split into two sects, known as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees would be the ones who would believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees would not. This is why they were sad, you see. <laughs> A joke that every preacher probably shares that. But that's how you can remember it. You know, sad, you see. Why? Because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And so they had an issue because Old Testament Scripture, Old Covenant Scripture was not clear on resurrection. 
And so that's what he's referring to. He's saying of the resurrection of the dead. In other words, under the law, there's some of you who believe in it. There's some of you who don't. And there's doubt and unbelief. But the fact of the matter is, is that there is a resurrection. And Jesus, you've seen him resurrect. You know that he's resurrected. And that's what he's talking about. But as I said, in the old covenant, resurrection was uncertain. And there were some who didn't believe in it. Watch us now. Jesus speaking to Sadducees here, who claim not to believe in the resurrection of the dead. Matthew chapter 22, verse 31 and 32. Watch us. Watch what he says to them. But now, as to whether there will be a resurrection of the dead, haven't you ever read about this in the scriptures? Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So, Jesus says, he is the God of the living, not the dead. In other words, what Jesus is saying to the Sadducees is, is that you claim there's no resurrection of the dead, and that's what you teach your disciples, so there's you know, controversy about that. He says, but the fact that God said after these people had died, he said that he's their God, talking about them being alive, it means that there is a resurrection because God speaks of them still existing, just not here with us, but they're still existing, so they're resurrected. And so... He clarifies this for the Sadducees, and I believe that some of them caught a clue and believed in the resurrection of the dead. But this is how controversial it was. And this is why, again, the writer of Hebrews makes a reference to that, because he says he knows. That was one of the basic things. Yes, those of you who believe in the resurrection, you know, you had the promises and you believed based on understanding, but you've got the real Jesus who actually resurrected. And then, remember, he spoke about eternal judgment, which is the sixth and final aspect that he brings into the picture to help us who would read Scripture in context and understand what he's talking about, to help us understand that he's not talking about baby Christianity and mature Christianity, but he's basically contrasting Judaism to Christianity. Or He's talking about law and grace. And he's saying, move on from law, because that's the basic principles of Messiah. And so eternal judgment, he's talking about old covenant understanding of eternal judgment. And again, it was something uncertain which caused the people to live in fear because they would never ever know if they would face harsh eternal judgment. They knew they would face judgment, but they were never certain if it would be favorable toward them or unfavorable toward them. And we in the covenant know, those of us who receive salvation in Jesus, all our sin was judged on the cross in Jesus. So when we stand at what is known as the judgment seat of Christ, and that word judgment is not in the original, by the way, it's the seat of Christ, it's going to be a reward, time of reward, a ceremony, if you will. It's not a time of judging for sin, because all your sin was judged. God is not going to judge your sin twice. Now again, I have to say this disclaimer for those who want to twist what I say, that doesn't mean that you can do what you like and think, well, all my sin was judged at the cross, so I'm good to go. No, that's one of the ways we reject salvation in Jesus. You can't lose your salvation from God's perspective, but you can reject your salvation by continuous engagement in sin. And so let's not misunderstand that. But the fact of the matter is, is, is that our sin was judged on the cross. So we can have confidence as it says in 1 John 4, 17, that, you know, we are as He is. And on the day of judgment, we can have confidence. Well, in the old covenant, eternal judgment was uncertain. Again, it was one of those things that they didn't know. 
because they never knew whether they were really measuring up to the law or not. And so he has two portions that show us that. Watch us in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 14. It says, For God will bring every act <clears throat> to judgment, every hidden and secret thing, whether it is good or evil. You see that right there. If you were living in the Old Testament, especially specifically under the law, you would be in fear and doubt. No matter how hard you're trying, you would always have this thing in the back of your mind. I hope it's going to be favorable. And sadly, so much of that has been brought today in, into Christendom because of a mixture of law and grace. And people are uncertain because they don't understand gospel truth. And this is why the author is saying, move on from that principle of Messiah because you no longer need to doubt. It is understood what happened as far as eternal judgment. Here's another example in the Old Testament. Psalm 9 verse 17. It says, The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. Oh my goodness. Look at that last part. And all the nations that forget God. Now if you just take that at face value, you could be part of a nation, you could be one of the good ones, the God-fearing ones, but because the whole nation is going to face judgment, you're included. So what's the point of even trying? You see, and that's a different teaching altogether. But the point is, is, is that under the old covenant, there was no certainty of eternal judgment. There was some understanding, but not complete. And this is why he's saying, you no longer have to be uncertain. So if you want to hang on to the law, the basic principle of Christ, well, it points to the new, to the real Jesus. And eternal judgment has been dealt with for you at the cross. That's in essence. So when he speaks about those six things, you can see from the little bit of, that I've shared with you in the time that we have, is, is that he is not talking about basic principles of the gospel of Christianity, if you will. He is talking about the things of the law. And he's saying, move on from those principles. Now, remember I said to you that we're going to, back to, we're going to go back to the middle part of verse 1. Well, let's have a look at that now. And I'm going to include the first part just to make sure we don't lose the context here, okay? Because of everything that I've said so far. So it says there, remember it said, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Christ should have been translated as Messiah more accurately. And some translations actually do that. And so, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Messiah. So it's talking about things of the law. And he's, he's shown you six things. I've shown you six things here that he mentioned what they are. And then after understanding those six things, he says, Let's leave, remember, divorce, detach yourself from those things. Let us go on unto perfection. What does he mean by perfection? Well, you know that he's talking about Jesus and redemption in Jesus now. Now that you know that those were types and shadows, well, the perfection of those is Jesus, is the new covenant, right? But just to make sure we understand it clearly, I want to show you that word perfection from the New American Standard Bible the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek dictionary, and see how that word should be translated and can also be translated as. It is the word perfection, and it's te teleotis, something like that. And here's how it should be translated. Completeness, perfection, and then it's translated as maturity one time and perfect as one time. 
But notice, it should be completeness. So he's, when he says, let us go on unto perfection, he's saying, let us go on unto completeness, pointing to Jesus. Why? Because the old covenant was not complete. But in Jesus, we've seen the fullness of him. Remember in one of the earlier chapters, he spoke about this, right? And so when you look at that, you can see that's what he's referring to when he says, let us go on into perfection. So what he's saying is, let's move on from the law and let's move on onto grace, the new covenant, the fullness of Jesus. So it's really by far a comparison of baby Christian and mature Christian. I hope you see that. And so much of Christianity misunderstood. I used to misunderstand that when I was in that environment because that's how it's taught. But that's not what it's talking about. Let me show you some scriptures here, some references to show us this perfection, this completeness that it's talking about. And the same word is used here. Watch this. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 11 from the New Living. It says, So if the priesthood of Levi, that's the old covenant priesthood, on which the law was based, could have achieved, watch this, the perfection, the completeness God intended, why did God need to establish a different priesthood with a priest in the order of Melchizedek instead of the order of Levi and Aaron? So there it shows you and it confirms that he's talking about, <laughs> he's talking about a perfection, a completeness in Jesus. And then if we look at the same chapter, verse 19, same thing. Watch what it says here. For the law never made anything perfect. Talking about people. But now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God, referring to Jesus, as you know. And so right there you can see that when he says, let us go on into perfection, he's talking about the new covenant. He's talking about relating to God by grace and not by law and moving on, detaching ourselves. Now, are we saying we should hate the law and just not live by the law at all? Of course not. You know, but we embrace the law for the reasons God gave the law, which are types and shadows that point us to Jesus. And that's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's used, continuously using Old Testament types and shadows to help this Jewish Hebrew audience understand and realize and come to the realization of new covenant realities. That's why he's doing this. But that's why he says, let's move on from those principles of the law, which are really types and shadows, and let's move on to the real, the complete. So you can see, he's not talking about baby Christians and mature Christians. He's talking about law and grace. Amen. And so we can see from this that what he's really saying at the end of the day is don't relate to God by law. Let's move on from that. Let's relate to God by grace, by the new covenant. That's what he's saying. He's saying let's not relate to God by the types and shadows, let's move on, let's leave, let's detach, let's divorce that and go on to full perfection. You can see that it makes sense now. Otherwise, if he was talking about, you know, just the gospel, why would he tell us to divorce ourselves from, you know, what people understand to be laying on of hands and water baptism, spirit of the Holy Spirit? I mean, it wouldn't make sense. It's contradictory. This is why it doesn't make sense. But anyway, so there we have it. Now, let's finish off with our last verse, verse 3, but I'm going to include the first part of verse 1 because it's going to help us understand the context with the six things we've seen in the middle. Okay, So let's read this. Therefore, he says, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, now you know what those are, let us go on unto perfection, 
Now you know what he's talking about there. And then he gave the six different things to explain that he means the law, leaving the law and embracing the new covenant, Jesus. Then he says in verse 3, And this we will do if God permit. In other words, let's move on from the things of the law, the basic things of the law that point to Jesus. And he says, and let's move on to perfection. But we're only going to move on to perfection, the completeness. We're only going to move on understanding the new covenant, he says, if God permit. Now, what does he mean by that? In other words, he doesn't, in his spirit, he must have sensed. I don't know if we can move on yet onto the more advanced understanding of gospel truth because he must have felt this thing that, you know, some of these people still need to hear some Old Testament truths that point to Jesus. I don't know. But the Amplified Classic actually helps us understand what he means a little bit better here. So let's have a look at that same portion we've just seen from the Amplified Classic. Therefore, let us go on and get past the elementary stage in the teachings and doctrine of Christ, the Messiah. See, this translation gets it right. So you know he's talking about the law. So the law is elementary. Because remember another portion, Paul said, you know, it's, as long as we're under the law, we need tutors, we need this, we're like a child. And so he says, therefore, let us go on and get past the elementary stage in the teachings of the doctrine of Christ. Why, why are they elementary? Because they point to him, they're not the real. Advancing steadily toward the completeness and perfection that belong to spiritual maturity. Now he's talking about the understanding of gospel truth. That's what he means by that. Then he says in verse 3, If indeed God permits, we will now proceed to advanced teaching. So that's really what he's saying when he says that. He said, okay, now I've spoken to you about the six things, the six basic things of the law, the six basic understandings of the law, and how we need to move on from those and detach, divorce ourselves from those. In other words, move on from the law, and let's now move on to greater understanding, which the Amplified Classic says, advanced teaching of gospel truth, the real Jesus. And you'll see now in the next portions, that's exactly what he's going to do. And so that's what he means by that. Why is that? Because in our last study last week, remember I said to you, his focus was on understanding the basic things of the law and moving on from those so that you can properly understand gospel truth. So apparently, even though there were Jews, even though there were Hebrews, most of them didn't really understand their own Old Covenant scripture and teaching, and therefore they failed to understand New covenant realities and understand the fullness of Jesus and who Jesus really was and what he did for them. And so it's like I said to you, I think that's one of the things that is missing in Christendom today. This is where Christians mix law and grace and they think it's all the same thing. And they come up with a doctrine that is a little weird because on the one hand it's by grace and on the other hand it's your merit and performance. And you can see that the writer's heart clearly here is for them. He's encouraging them to move on from relating to God by law and relating to God by new covenant grace. Move into that. This is how you need to relate to God, by grace, by new covenant. We trust that you are blessed by this message. For more information about our ministry or to make a donation to help us continue spreading the gospel, please visit our website at 
redemptioninjesus.com.